Luke chapter 10, continuing in the, uh, following the course of Jesus' life, the step-by-step chronology of, of the three and a half years that as Jesus moved and ministered and touched lives. Got some strange things held within this passage. We're going to try to do our best to cover the 20 verses of this story. Verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed other, 70 also, sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself would come. The time of Jesus' departure is growing near. The training of these is important, and the, not only for them to know it intellectually and understand it because they saw it, but for them to actually be able to minister under what Jesus was teaching was absolutely necessary. He knew he was going away. He knew that this time would come to an end, and he, but he needed them to know what, what was critical in ministry. And he chooses 70. So we know that he expanded it here above the 12 that he had sent out before into a group of, of those who had followed him and who knew him and were, would trust him. So he, he chooses 70. He sends them out in 35 groups, two at a time, and gives them this instruction. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. I don't know of a time in history when that statement hasn't been true. There seems to be in our world today so much to do, so many people to share, so many people to touch, so many people to redeem and to deliver. I know what I deal with. I know some of what you deal with. I know some of parts of your ministry. But I can tell you that it has the feeling, as it did here in Jesus' statement, that there's a lot out in front of us and there seems to be very few laborers who are actually going into the harvest. Pray ye therefore. So the first instruction that he gave these 70 people was to pray that the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into this harvest. Seems like, okay, it's like these 70 could have said, okay, I'm going to sit back and we're going to hold a prayer meeting and we're going to pray that God would send laborers. It didn't work exactly that way with Jesus. He, he said to pray that the laborers would come. And by the way, while we're waiting on them to come, I'm going to send 70 of you in advance. They didn't have the privilege of just sitting and praying. He put feet to those prayers as well. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Again, just a brief statement that Jesus fully well understood the emotion and the mental consideration that these 70 would have as they were going out, probably feeling unprepared, ill-prepared, with very little knowledge, very little understanding, very little courage to go where they were going to go. So Jesus acknowledges that you are lambs among wolves. But there's also another a necessity in that statement. If you know that you're a lamb and you know that you're in this pack of wolves, you've kind of got two options here. One, turn and run for your life, or to find someone who's bigger than the wolves. Find somebody who's got capability greater than the wolves. And I love, I haven't heard this in years, and I couldn't even go back and find it. You know, and I've heard Graham Cook say it as well, about what it feels like to have the Lion of Judah, that tremendous beast by our side. We know someone, he's speaking of someone, who is greater than the wolves. It doesn't matter that we feel or think that we may be insufficient as a lamb would face a wolf. 
because the acknowledgement that he's trying to get us to make is that there is absolutely one greater than the wolves, even if you are a lamb. The lamb is easy to hold in the arms of the one who's mighty. Carry neither purse, nor scrip, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. He's not saying don't greet people. He's saying that if you met somebody on the road, you stopped, and there was a very formal greeting. He's saying don't give yourself to that formality. The business that you have is more urgent than that. Verse 5, and into whatsoever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. So as you approach a house and you recognize that when you acknowledge the peace that God gives and it's reciprocated that you receive that peace, enter into that house. If you offer that peace and you recognize that it's not there, then you take what you've offered symbolically back and you move on. You stay where you recognize the peace. Verse 7, And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Jesus said a mouthful right there when he said what they set before you because he broke down several barriers in that statement. What they were supposed to eat as Jews was very established and according to tradition. And he's saying, pay no attention to it. What they said in front of you, whether they be Jew or Gentile, you're supposed to eat it. Verse 9, and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. I want to tell you this resonates very strangely in our head. It rolled off of Jesus' tongue as if he was saying any other words at any other time written in the scripture. But he just gave these 35 couples, he simply gave them this instruction, and heal the sick that are therein. He didn't give them a recipe for how to do it. He didn't say you, need, you hold their hand, you touch their body, you pray for them. Absent the fact that they had watched him, heal people, that they had been involved in seeing that this happened as Jesus had done it. There's no particular training that he gives them, but he sends them under a very clear assumption that that they have the authority and the power to bring that healing. And he says, I want you to do it. I want that to happen because the, the number one thing is I want them to know by some manifest reality that the kingdom of God has come to you. I want them to be able to see the difference. I want there to be some evidence that the kingdom of God has come. And he says, I want it to happen because you walk into their houses where there are sick, where you meet them. I want you to bring the healing that I can give so that they will know that the kingdom of God and that healing are tied together. I'm not going to make this a conversation boldly about the healing of the sick, but this I will say, the healing of the sick the delivering of those whose hearts are broken, the salvation of those who are lost, and that transformation should, in our church today, in our lives today, should still be the resonating statement that says the kingdom of God has come. Because if there is no healing, if there is no transformation, if there is no salvation, if there is nothing dynamic about the change within the Christian's life, how would we ever announce that the kingdom of God has come? Because to the world, it just looks like the same old stuff. He was announcing with great profundity that there will be a transition, that there will be something that will manifest 
that will show people that the kingdom of God has truly come. And we almost dismiss that as an expectation that we should not have. And that's why we allow this very strange belief that I can become a Christian and my life looks absolutely no different than it did before. We saw that in the story of the tribute money a couple of weeks ago when that first servant came who owed millions and millions of dollars and was forgiven much, talked to the king, expressed his desire that the king would be patient, asked for forgiveness, and the king forgave the entire debt. But that same servant went out and found a fellow servant who owed him only a few dollars and had him thrown in prison. King hears about it. Well, the strangeness of this story was Jesus was not only talking to us about the tribute money, he was telling us that the servant who was forgiven much did not take on the heart of the king. He did not take on the identity and the, and the mercy, the compassion and the kindness of the king. Because if he had, the servant who only owed a few dollars would have also been talking to the king, would have also been talking to that same nature and would have received that same forgiveness. Jesus is trying to tell us, and he does it in a very consistent and passionate way, that we are as children of God to take on the nature of God, that we take on his identity, that we function as the father functions so that the world talks to us and has a conversation with our father so they can receive through us what the father can release to them, but he does it through us, telling us very specifically, very plainly that our life after our salvation, after our conversion, the dynamic change will be the evidence and the announcement that the kingdom of God has come. Our life should be that mystery to the world as they look at us, see the uniqueness, hear the difference, see the peace, understand the nature of God itself that lives in us, and recognize that the kingdom of God has come near. You know, the the question for all of us is, is our life that testimony? Is it that evidence? Do people know that God has come, that Jesus has died, that he rose from the dead, that the Holy Spirit has come, Does the world know that, that the kingdom of God has come near them because they've met us, because they've been around us, because they've encountered us? We are supposed to be, like these 35 couples were, that witness. Verse 10, he says, But into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaves unto us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. So even as if they reject you, even in their rejection, they should know by your statements, by your response, they should know that the kingdom of God, whether they come accepting or rejecting, they should know that they, that they haven't encountered the kingdom of God, that that's actually what they're dealing with. Verse 12, but I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in the day for Sodom than for that city. We understand the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We understand the punishment that God had on those two cities because of their rejection, because of their, the sad state of affairs that were there. We know about their punishment and how severe it was. And he's saying, for those cities that refuse me, those cities that turn me away, those cities that will not hear what you're trying to say, it will be better for Sodom than it will be for them. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works that had been done in Tyre and Sidon 
which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented. Now, we don't know anything about, about that first city. We know a little bit about the second one, but it says here very clearly that Jesus was there. He had done mighty works. There had been great demonstrations of power. There had been great evidence that the kingdom of God had come, and they said no. And he's saying because of their rejection of, what, of that mighty work, the punishment on those cities is going to be worse than it was on Sodom in the Old Testament. Do you think Jesus is serious? Do you think he's got those 70 people's attention? Do you think he should have our attention? I'm not really just necessarily talking to the world. I'm talking to the church itself that has refused the Spirit of God, has refused to let God be God within church. There will be a consequence because we are the place where we have seen the mighty works. We have heard the truth. We have seen the great sacrifice. We know of the tremendous love. And if we reject it, he's saying unto us as well, woe unto us if we reject, having seen such a mighty work and such great transformation, the power of what God and God alone can do. Verse 14, but it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou Capernaum, all of these towns were around the Sea of Galilee. And thou Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. That word is Hades. I mean, these are serious words, serious statements, that if they reject what these 35 couples, these 35 pairs of people are coming to share, then this will be the outcome. He that hears you, hears me. Please don't miss this verse. This is the kingpin of all this truth. He's saying basically to that 35, if you go out there and you express your opinions, your thoughts, that's going to be on you. But if you go in my name, if you go speaking and teaching the truth, if you go releasing... And saying what comes off of my heart and saying it, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting me. He that hears you, hears me. He that despises you, despises me. And he that despises me, despises him that sent me. And the 70 returned again with joy. I mean, this had to be some moment when those 70 who had been sent out under that instruction came back. And the 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, please don't forget the last part. Through thy name. One of the, and you've heard me say this over the last several weeks, but a message that I hope that we can all walk away with, trust and know is true. Everything that God did, the great evidence that we see in the Old Testament, the great witness of Jesus, the great reality of what was accomplished had a purpose in it that we have to stand on and we have to preach and we have to teach. Through Jesus' death, he set us free from sin. In that moment, he covered our sins so that the Father can't even see it. He set us free from the consequence of the sin of our life when we accept him to be our Savior. Freedom from sin. When Jesus came out of that tomb and was alive again, he set us free from the consequence of death. I will never die if he's my savior. My body may, my body probably will, depending on when he comes, but my soul and spirit never will, and my body will come back to life at at the appointed day, and death, when Jesus came out out of that tomb, set us free. His resurrection set us free from death. Him sending the Holy Spirit set us free from the futility of self-effort trying to be good Christians when there's no chance to be. Everything that was done, every step 
was designed to set us free. And strangely, I don't know many Christians who live in freedom. Seem to still be bothered by doubt, bothered by fear, bothered by tomorrow, bothered by the uncertainties, bothered by situations, bothered by circumstances, bothered by, by finance. Just on and on and on the story can go about how many things that we carry and how rare it is for us to truly live in the freedom that he paid such a price to give us. We read right here, and this is kind of in this severe end, but the reality of, of the fact that we still in this day and time, much to some people's surprise who've been in church a long time, we still deal with demonic things. If we think that day is over, we have drastically fooled ourselves. But we are not people in any form or fashion who are designed by in the heart of God to fear any demon set before us. It says it right here. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They had seen Jesus deal with it. They had seen Jesus address these. And I can tell you with an absolute certainty that this has never changed. You know, Vicki called me, it might have been three years ago now, early in the morning, had me to come over to her house. And she told me of a strange night within her house. I won't go into the details of it because I don't want to glorify anything about what was wrong that, that night. Had nothing to do with her, had nothing to do with her house or what she had invited in. It was very clear that someone else had invited something that did not belong in her house. It was unbelievable. Sounds, noise, wind, just strange things. We've done this before. Some of you have been involved in these, and we will do more of them as, as necessary. Dealing with the same thing. Recognizing where by the authority that God gives, we go into those homes because there has been a presence that has, through some means, usually very unintentionally, been invited. I want to tell you that there is absolutely no reason to live in fear of that darkness. It almost sounds ridiculous. And people ask me, would you get a group and come? I always say yes, but I always tell them, I would much prefer that you recognize that within yourself you have that authority. So that when you're alone there and you won't feel uncertain because that group's not around anymore, that you, you recognize that you have the authority to clean your own house. And that that demon, or that darkness, whatever it is that's in your house, is subject to you in Jesus' name. They have to obey you. What is going on here? Jesus is careful when it, at coming out of this story. We'll read the rest of this. He's careful about instructing them about this because he sees the joy that they have because they have the, maybe for the first time they've recognized you have authority. You have to be careful because and Jesus warns them about exactly how to frame what just happened. And we'll look at this. Verse 18. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. This is Jesus saying, when that was going on, he wasn't there. I studied this to, to make sure I was correct. There are four different times when Satan is moved by the power of God. The first one was as Lucifer and, and his beauty became corrupted and he became Satan and he was cast to the ground. This is the one that Jesus is referring to. He's seeing in this moment how Satan had to leave anywhere that the presence of God is established. That's why he's saying, I saw it. 
as people were being delivered, as demons were being addressed, and people were being set free, I saw Satan having to flee just the same way that he had to come out of the presence of God. That's pretty exciting for Jesus to share in their testimony and say, yeah, while that was going on, this is what I was seeing. That's pretty telling and pretty dynamic for Jesus to say and add to the amazement. He says, behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Strange words, powerful words, just this reality as he was speaking over them. And it seems so far from us. It seems so distant. This is probably a ridiculous example, but, you know, as pastor, hospital ministry is, is just hard for me. I don't know why. I think until Janice passed away and we spent so much time in the hospital, before that it was a very easy part of ministry for me. After that, it just got hard. Something I still do, I I just will confess I don't do it well. But one of the realities is that as pastor, I walk into the rooms of people who are sometimes very sick. And there was a time in ministry, even probably before I started here, Every time I'd go into that room, I would have this concern about, am I going to catch what they have? The flu or whatever it happened to be. And I was in the hospital one day, and the Lord just brought this calm over me and said, you're here because I sent you. The provision has already come. I have peace about it ever since. It's a small thing, but it's what he was saying. You're doing, you're, you're moving in my name. You have the authority that I give you. Where you go, the enemy can't touch you. You live in a supernatural kingdom. You're a member of a supernatural city. You belong to a supernatural king. You're a citizen in his kingdom. What in the world could touch you? And he's describing it here very well. and says, you have power over the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Verse 20, notwithstanding, and this is where he gives this, Small amount of correction. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. He saw them come back with joy. He saw them experience that. He shared in that testimony. And then he said, but I need to tell you something. I don't want you to rejoice in the fact that you have power like that. I don't want that to be the the basis of your celebration. I don't want that to be why you rejoice. As great as that is, and as the evidence that that will will bear, I don't want that to be what you celebrate. Again, he says it, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the fact that you are a kingdom citizen. Rejoice in the fact that because you are a kingdom citizen, you have access to the authority of heaven. You have a father who is the king. You have a brother who is your savior. You have a friend. You have a relationship with God. Celebrate the foundation of it, not just this mere fact that you have authority over these demons and over this darkness. Celebrate what's worthy of celebrating. Know who you belong to. Celebrate that. That's the foundation of our celebration. Because of that, yes, we have authority. But our celebration should be much broader than that single rejoicing in the fact that I have subject over the enemy. Rejoice in the fact that you are a kingdom citizen and that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Rejoice in the fact that you're saved. 
Most gracious Heavenly Father, just we thank you, Lord, for the truth held here. I pray, Lord, that we will not do anything to minimize it, to adjust it, to remove it, to confuse it, but that we would understand that what you spoke to that 70 that you sent, there's no place in the scripture where you say that that's still not possible and still not true. I pray, first of all, that our lives, what we do by the hands that you give us and the spirit that lives in us, that the world would know that the kingdom has come, that they would see the transformed reality of our lives, that we're not people of fear, we're not people of doubt, we're not people of uncertainty, we're people of purity, we're people of righteousness because of what you have done, and by that transformation, they will know that you have come, that our lives would be such a witness. I pray, Lord, that we would understand the authority that you give us in relationship to the enemy and know, Lord, that if they reject it, if they reject us and the message that you've placed on our heart, that they're rejecting you and the one who sent you. And, Lord, that we would find great understanding in the fact that that rejection was not, though it it may hurt and it may feel personal, that that rejection was of something far greater and that we, too, would be able to do as you instructed to walk away from that moment, the dirt from our feet, to leave it there, and Lord, even by our departure, that they would know that the kingdom has come. We thank you for this story. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of it and the reality of it, and pray, Lord, that we would stand on it in Jesus' name. Amen.